You may not be surprised to hear me say this morning that Jesus is the most important individual to have ever walked upon the face of the earth. Now, with this most important individual to have ever walked upon the face of the earth, there have been a wide variety of attempts to customize and domesticate Jesus. And what I mean by that is, is exactly what I'm saying. There have, over the course of the last 2,000 years, since the incarnation of the eternal Son of God and the person of Jesus Christ, been attempts to make him less than he really was. Been attempts to customize Jesus and his gospel message to fit political agendas or ideologies, to fit per- personal religious experiences or religious systems. There have been attempts to domesticate Jesus, to tame him, to fit into our agendas. And in large part, St. Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians to deal with just such an effort to customize Christ. The church in Colossae was likely planted by Epaphras during Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus, recorded in Acts chapter 19. Paul is not recorded as ever going to this small city about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And so it seems likely as if that Epaphras heard the gospel of Jesus, preached in Ephesus, became a believer, and went perhaps home to Colossae to plant a church. Here in the letter that Paul writes to this church in Colossians, it appears as though Epaphras has tracked Paul down to Rome, where, Rome, where Paul is imprisoned. And he has talked to Paul about challenges, about a crisis in the church itself. The church, as we pick up from clues within the letter, the church, we can see, has been under attack by false teaching all around the person of Jesus. From the letter itself, it appears to be, this false teaching appears to be a system of thought, a system of teaching made up of bits and pieces what the teachers liked and and rejecting what they didn't like from Greek philosophy, Jewish tradition, and even pagan folk religion. And within this sort of grab bag system, the person and work of Jesus was directly undermined. It was an attempt to customize and domesticate him as both his full humanity and his full divinity were denied. Angels were elevated to a place of intermediary to be called upon for help. The need for special knowledge and insight was probably claimed by its proponents and declared necessary for salvation. And in all of it, Jesus, his person and his work, as declared in Scripture, found in history, was devalued. The attempt was to customize and domesticate Jesus. We ought not be surprised when, in our own time, we encounter someone proclaiming a Jesus very different than the one revealed in Scripture and found in history. We ought not be surprised when we encounter, in the year 2019, efforts to turn Jesus into something that Jesus has not revealed to be, to customize him. And we ought not be surprised when we encounter efforts to domesticate, to tame Jesus and the totalitarianism of his message. It's nothing new. The attacks upon the most important individual to have ever walked upon the face of the earth have never ceased. And in a culture in which Jesus, his person and his work, is constantly under attack, We need to hear what St. Paul says about the preeminence of Christ in Colossians chapter 1. 
The reality is, when it comes to Jesus, the reality is that we cannot domesticate him. The reality is we cannot customize him because he is superior to anything and everything in the world. In a word, Jesus is preeminent. Specifically, Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul says that Jesus is preeminent over creation and the church. And if you're using the notes and quotes section in your bulletin this morning, you'll see that's the big idea for our sermon. In our first section this morning, we will talk about Jesus being preeminent over creation because he is God, because he is creator, because he is sustainer. In our second section this morning, we'll talk about Jesus being preeminent over the church because he is its head, and he is the one who reconciles. And in our third section this morning, we'll talk about what this means for us in life, clinging to truth, capital T, truth, offering worship and service. About Jesus, St. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Paul's going to talk about it. He does talk about Jesus being creator and sustainer. But underlying that, Paul talks about Jesus being God. Now here, Paul lays out what I think we can refer to as a really thick theology. There's deep stuff here. It's so deep that we could not and cannot fully plummet. But it is a thick theology that we can understand. St. Paul declares the unequaled importance and rank of Jesus. He declares his preeminence over creation in the first place because Jesus is God. In verses 15 and 19, we see this. Jesus is God. Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And when he does this, he's using really powerful language. We think about what an image is. On the first hand, an image is a reflection. Think about when you look in a mirror, you're not seeing your actual face. You're seeing a reflection of your face. You never actually see your own face. Did you know that? And thank God in some of our cases that we don't actually see our own face. I should wake up every morning and look at my wife and say, I'm sorry, I'm not better looking. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is reflective of God. He is the perfect reflection of God. And so if you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus because Jesus is the perfect reflection of God. And in his perfection, he leads us to a second way in which one thing can image another. An image, a, a representation of something, if it's perfect enough, can be a manifestation of the very thing it images, the very presence of that thing. Jesus, in his imaging of the invisible God, is such, is perfect in that, so that he is God himself. He is the presence of God. Not just a reflection, but the very thing that is being imaged, God himself. 
Paul here is using exalted language to proclaim that Jesus is God in flesh. And we must be careful, we must be careful to state that Jesus didn't become God. No, he's always been God. St. Paul states in verse 19, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This means nothing less than Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. There is nothing that God is that Jesus lacks. All the attributes, all the activities of God belong to Jesus. They are Jesus' rights. And more to this point, St. Paul declares that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. This is not a reference to Jesus coming into existence. The context of the verses actually eliminate the possibility. And so when, when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn, it's a reference to his status, to his position. You see, in the ancient world, and in some parts of the world still today, there was this thing called primogeniture, which means the firstborn son has the rank and the authority to inherit the title and most of the lands. So the son, the firstborn son of a wealthy landowner would actually receive two-thirds of the total amount the rest of the kids, no matter how many there were, would have to split one-third. It's the firstborn son that becomes the duke or the earl. It's the firstborn son that becomes the king. And that's probably what Paul is referencing even here as he's talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, the heir of the kingdom. What St. Paul has in mind here is that Jesus has all the rights and privileges of the firstborn son, Seemingly, St. Paul has in mind the firstborn son of a king, especially in light of the declaration of Psalm 89, 27, where God says to the Messiah, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. What we're seeing here is nothing less than the, the statement, the acknowledgement that Jesus is preeminent over creation priorly, primarily because he is God. And being God, then he is creator. Paul says that there is not a thing in all of this creation that was made without him making it. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, St. Paul writes, were created through him and for him. Just as St. John in the Gospel according to John chapter 1 declares that all things were created through Jesus, so St. Paul declares Jesus to be the agent of creation. And again, we see this all-encompassing term, all things. Nothing is left out. Nothing exists outside of his creative act. And because of the particular false teaching that St. Paul was countering, Angels and spiritual realities are specifically listed in this verse. Even the angels and the spiritual realities, St. Paul is saying to these people in Colossae, even they own their very existence to the Creator, the one who is preeminent over creation. Even these things that you reach out to and say, hey, help me, even they are in submission to the one who created them. They were created by him and they were created for him. When St. Paul says that all things were created through him and for him, we're seeing a telos, a goal, and a purpose of creation revealed. It is Jesus. 
Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is creator, Jesus is the goal of creation. It's his, and it was created for the purpose of giving him glory. It was created for the purpose of offering him honor and praise. It was created for the purpose of being in right relationship with its creator. And in the end, it will return to that. Paul speaks with such incredibly exalted language about Jesus. He's God. He's creator. He's sustainer. Notice what he says in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, if you really stop to think about this, in him all things hold together. Play this out. Why is there something instead of nothing? Because of Jesus. As much as this world is in a mess, why is there some control to the chaos? Because of Jesus. Why is there gravity? Because of Jesus. He is gravity. Why, is the, why does the sun rise and set? Why do the tides rise and fall? Why can rain come and crops grow? Why is there anything predictable about this world? Because Jesus holds all things together. He is the one who sustains. And all of these things that he created work for his purposes and according to his will because he is preeminent. Let's just stop for just a minute and let's allow some science to expand our vision of Jesus this morning, our vision of Jesus as preeminent over creation, as God, as creator and sustainer. Back in 2016, Discovery Magazine published an article that suggested there are around 700 quintillion planets in the universe. 700 quintillion, just for us to get our minds around that number, is a single seven followed by 20 zeros. And according to a scientist by the name of Eric Zacherson, of the 700 quintillion planets in the universe, there is only one Earth. In a galaxy like the Milky Way, most of the planets of Zacherson's model generated look very different from Earth. They're larger, they're older, and very unlikely to support life. Only one of the planets, seven followed by 20 zeros, only one have the most has the most fundamental requirements for a planet to sustain life in its orbit. Only one has what's called the Goldilocks principle, where the temperature is just right and liquid water can exist. And so the, the author of the article has to ask himself the question, it begs a simple question, if, if the earth and earth dwellers were dealt a lucky hand, who dealt the card? The article doesn't mention God, but it can't avoid language that implies a master card dealer. Is it just chance that one in 700 quintillion turns out to be this? Or could it be that there is a God who created, who is a sustainer? Could it be that there is Jesus? MIT professor and Jesus believer Daniel Hastings stated, I start by saying there is a God who created the universe, and he is not an impersonal God. And so to use the language of the Discovery article, Jesus is the master card dealer. He is the preeminent personal God of creation. And he is preeminent over his church. As we turn to look at verses 18 through 22 this morning, we see that Jesus, who is preeminent over creation, is preeminent over the church because he is the head of the body and the reconciler of sinful humanity to holy God. And he is the head of the body, the church, St. Paul writes in verse 18. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the creator of life, and Jesus is the recreator of life. What a wonderful metaphor St. Paul uses to talk about the necessary and contingent relationship between Jesus and his church. Jesus is necessary to the church body as the head. You think about it. What would happen if your body lost its head? Very literally. We use this as a sort of a joke all the time. I just lost my head. Oh, my head. But what would happen if your body literally lost its head? It wouldn't live. It wouldn't exist. And I know there's all this science that says you can lop a person's head off with a guillotine. The person's head remains cognizant for like two minutes. But still, death is imminent, right? So it is for the church. If we lose Jesus, we lose life. Because it's only in the head that there is life. Jesus is the source. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the source of life for his church. And so it is necessary that Jesus be the head of the church. And any organization that claims to be the church must recognize Jesus as head. Jesus of Scripture, not a domesticated and customized Christ. Jesus is the head. He is necessary. He is the leader of the church. He directs its action. He controls its life. It's also true that the body is contingent upon the head. He is the pioneer, the firstborn from the dead. Again, a statement of status and position. Just as the agent of creation was Jesus, so it is that he is the agent of recreation. Without Jesus, there is no church. Without Jesus, this is a social club that meets at a really odd hour. Without Jesus' death, there is no reconciliation. And without Jesus' resurrection, there is no life. When it comes to Jesus and this thick theology of who Jesus is, when it comes to the depth of his being, we may find ourselves adrift and and wondering if perhaps this is all too much to be understood or perhaps this is all just too good to be true. Jess Ray sings a song, and in it she says, It may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. He may be too good to be understood, but he's not too good to be alive. Jesus is alive, St. Paul tells us. He is preeminent over the church because of his death and his resurrection. He is the one who has reconciled sinful humanity through the blood of his cross. This one who is preeminent over creation because he is its creator. He is its sustainer. He is God, has come into the world, taken upon himself flesh, given of himself that we might have life. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The one exalted above all things because he existed before all things. And is the cause of all things. This one is the reconciler. This one is the maker of peace at great cost to himself. This one has made peace by the blood of his cross. It's almost as if St. Paul is speaking directly to us when he says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Let's not think too highly of ourselves. These aren't just words to the people of Colossae. 
These are words to the people of Destin. These are words to the people of my own household, beginning with me. You who were once hostile, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We cannot attain the heights. We cannot exalt Jesus enough. We cannot give him enough glory and honor and praise because of who he is and what he has done. But we can understand enough to say Jesus is preeminent. He's the head of the church. He is the reconciler at his own life, the cost of his own life. And folks, this is where reconciliation between holy God and sinful humanity is found. It's not found anywhere else. It's found in the blood of Jesus' cross. We can't earn it. We can't achieve it. We can't buy it. We can only receive it by grace through faith. And this is where we must recognize that the attempts to customize and domesticate Jesus fail him, and they fail us. Attempts to customize and domesticate Jesus, they leave us without a Christ. They leave us with only a Jesus who is not divine or not human and is thus unable to save. Attempts to customize and domesticate Jesus leave us without a hope of salvation. A Jesus who is not divine cannot save. A Jesus who is not human will not save. But thanks be to God, the truth is that Jesus The eternal Son of God has come as the incarnate God to work out all that is necessary for reconciliation, and He will come again to bring history to its end. Ultimately, all rebellion against the Creator King will come to an end. Those who follow after Jesus come into His peace, and those who are enemies of Jesus will receive a reconciliation of judgment. This does not mean they will receive the peace of salvation. Rather, it means that they will know who they are in relation to who Jesus is. Just as every single aspect of creation was brought into existence by Jesus, so it is that every single aspect of creation will be reconciled in submission to the king who is Jesus. For some, that submission to the king will look like a peaceful relationship of joy and worship. But for others, submission means justice eternal justice. And the difference between the two submissions is reconciliation in the here and now by grace through faith in the blood of his cross. Now, now, today, 2019, now those who are far away, now those who are in war of rebellion against God can be brought near because Jesus has done the work of reconciliation. The Creator has taken upon Himself flesh. He has entered into the very time in history over which He is the Lord and King for the express purpose of bringing about salvation through the blood of His cross and His glorious resurrection. He did this to reconcile. He did this in order to present you and me holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Jesus is preeminent over the church. He makes it. He reconciles it. And ultimately, he will judge it and all of his creation. By way of application this morning, let's consider the final verse of our passage, which Jeff read for us from Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became 
a minister. Here we see St. Paul encouraging his audience then and now to hold fast to the preeminent Jesus, the one that we call truth. Remember the problems in Colossae and think about our challenges today. False teachers and folk religion, a spiritual but not religious mentality, the endorsement of an all-you-can-eat buffet mentality when it comes to truth and belief. There are so many options that feed into our consumerist mentality. We act towards God or the divine just as we act towards toothpaste. We pick what we want, and what we want is dependent upon what we like, not upon truth. We're bombarded with false teachings, false gospels, false promises, attempts to customize and domesticate Jesus, abound, and competing truth claims and plausibility structures can lead us to wander and to wonder. They can lead us astray. Paul's encouragement, after laying out this deep truth of who Jesus is, the preeminent one, his encouragement is to hold fast to this Jesus, to this truth, because he alone can save. Jesus alone is preeminent. Jesus alone is the firstborn, the creator, the sustainer, the head, and the reconciler. Paul says, continue in this faith. Hold fast to this truth. A contemporary author named Rebecca McLaughlin writes this. Jesus claims rule over all of heaven and earth. He presents himself not as one possible path to God, but as God himself. We may choose to disbelieve him, but he cannot be one truth among many. He has not left us that option. And Paul says, cling to this truth, the truth of Christ, the preeminent one over creation and the church, the only one in whom there is life, the only one in whom there is reconciliation with holy God. And so we must reject any attempt to customize or domesticate Jesus. These things necessarily detract from the Jesus of Scripture, and a Jesus less than the Jesus of Scripture cannot save, leaves us hopeless and helpless. We must be warned, however, that holding fast to this truth of Jesus found in Scripture will cause problems. Speaking to a seminary audience in 1964, Leslie Newbigin told them, when we affirm, as the church must do, that freedom is not the natural endowment of every human being, but is something to be won by acknowledgement of the truth, and that in the end, the truth is something given in the sheer grace of God to be received in faith, there is bound to be anger. And so when we hold fast to the truth of Jesus, the preeminent one, we must recognize that we are swimming against the currents in which our culture now swims. It was true in Paul's day, and it is true today. But difficulty never negates our responsibility. If you seek to be reconciled, hold fast to Jesus. St. Paul confronts false teaching with thick theology because thick theology declares truth that is vital to faith, just as it is fundamental to worship. Thick theology leads to doxology. Knowledge about God, true knowledge about God, leads to praise. A Jesus less than the, scripture of, the Jesus of Scripture cannot save and a Jesus less than the Jesus of Scripture is not worthy of worship. In reading passages such as Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, we should marvel at the kindness and grace of God. We should be humbled and called into deeper depths of worship. 
Psalm 8 reflects upon the universe, which then leads the psalmist to cry out, What is man that you are mindful of him that you created? A passage such as Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, should lead us to cry out, What is man that you came, O King of glory, to save? Only Jesus is worthy of our worship and praise because only Jesus is preeminent. Only Jesus can save. And even the beginning of grasping a hold of the thickness should drive us to our knees, should lift our eyes to heaven, should open our mouths in song. And yet I wonder, does the church in America suffer worship problems because we've attempted to customize and domesticate Jesus? And yet I wonder in conversations with individuals in which I am told worship is boring, in which I am told I didn't get anything out of it. Perhaps the fact of the matter is not that God is boring, it's that you're boring. Perhaps the fact of the matter is, is that we have become so anemic and lifeless, not because of the use of liturgy, or not because of the style of music, not because of the use of lighting or lack thereof, not because of the use of a fog machine or lack thereof. Perhaps our worship is anemic and lifeless. Perhaps we think it's boring because we've lost a thick theology of the one toward whom our worship is directed. Perhaps that's why we feel that we need, in so many circumstances, to resort to cheap tricks in our worship, having lost sight of the true one who is the truly spectacular. Perhaps that's why we resort to human spectacle. A passage of Scripture such as Colossians chapter 1, 15-23 should cut through the humbug of dead traditionalism, and it should cut through the mentality of infotainment worship. Why? Because Jesus is preeminent over creation and the church. Jesus is worthy of our worship through our words, through our prayers, through our songs, and through the sacrament. The preeminent one is the only one who can save. That is truth. We must cling to it. The preeminent one is the only one worthy of our worship. Let us focus on him. And finally, as we find in the preeminent Christ truth, as we find in the preeminent Christ, the one who is worthy of worship, so we find one who is worthy to serve. St. Paul declares that he was a minister of the good news of what the Creator God has done to reconcile sinful humanity and creation to himself. Having received the gospel, St. Paul was then called to minister literally to serve the gospel. Of course, not all who follow Jesus are called into a ministry such as St. Paul's, but all who follow after Jesus are called to minister to serve the gospel. And so you and I, and all who would believe in Jesus, the preeminent Lord of creation and the church, we too should proclaim, I became a servant. Of that, I became a minister. We minister the gospel by building relationships. We minister the gospel by proclaiming the preeminent Jesus. We minister the gospel by inviting those we know and love to know him, the Jesus of Scripture, the preeminent one who alone can save, who alone is worthy of worship, who alone is worthy of service. To be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom, requires the preeminent Christ. Nothing less will do. Because nothing less will save. Jesus, preeminent over creation and the church, is the one we proclaim. It is Jesus who is the truth. It is Jesus who gives life. He is the one, Jesus, who is preeminent over all of creation 
and the church. May Jesus be glorified in our worship, in our lives as we cling to his truth, and in our ministries of service to the gospel. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious God, we praise you and we give you thanks for you are kind. Lord, help us in some measure to capture the glorious excellency of Christ, to offer him our worship and our praise, to cling to him as our truth, and to serve him as we love our neighbors. Holy Spirit, come and work in us that we may be humbled before the preeminent Christ, that we, believing in him and are reconciled to the Father, may seek after him before all else. Come and do that work beginning in me. And be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship this morning, let us stand and sing.